Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Longevity Muscle Podcast. I'm Kenny, your host, and today we have a special guest joining us, Peter Kacharian. Peter is a YouTuber. For those of you who may not know, definitely go check out his channel. It's literally Peter Kacharian, his first and last name. He is a bodybuilding coach for strength and physique athletes and anyone who's just looking to get jacked. And he competed from 2009 to 2015 in the MPC Men's Physique. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, I thought it would be great to dive into a little bit of your history before we get into the fun questions for the viewers, as far as bringing value to the table when it comes to muscle building. Let's talk about your history a little bit. So you did compete from 2009 to 2015. Why don't you break that down for the listeners? Um, maybe talk about, yeah, your first contest and how that kind of escalated to, you know, to where it did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I actually, I started training in 2003, I believe. So I started freshman year in high school. So about 14 years old, I started training, was absolutely obsessed with it. I mean, by 16, my goal was I wanted to be a pro bodybuilder. You know, that was all I thought about, you know, at the time, you know, being in high school, you know, my friends were going out, hanging out, doing things on the weekends. I was just obsessed with bodybuilding. That was all I wanted to do. I did my first show in 2009. I was 20 years old. So I did my first show. I did it. Uh, INBF, Long Island Experience was the show. So uh, I'm from New York, grew up in Long Island. It was a local show in the area. I had actually been a fan of natural bodybuilding for years prior. So I had actually watched that show two or three times before. That was the year I said, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the show for the first time. Uh, 20 years old, I went in. I went in thinking I was going to just blow everybody away. And uh, I had a big wake-up call when I did that show. Uh, I dieted probably for about 10 or 12 weeks, and I probably came in maybe 10 pounds heavier than I should have. I thought I was going to go in, and I thought I was going to outmuscle everybody. And you know, especially at that time, that's when bodybuilding or natural bodybuilding specifically, they really started rewarding like the shredded glutes. Like That was kind of the, the era that everyone was going and trying to bring conditioning, and I just didn't bring it. After that, I competed. I took two years off, and I said, all right, listen, I was just as hungry as I was back then. I wanted to go in. I wanted redemption. I wanted to go in. I wanted to really pursue my dream of getting a pro card. So I took two years off and I said, I'm going to come in bigger and leaner. And I accomplished both of those things. I came in five pounds lighter, probably carrying about 10 more pounds of muscle. So I really, I brought the conditioning. I nailed it. Um, competed in about four shows that year. And I learned a lot about bodybuilding. I would say that, that 2011 was the year that I learned the majority of what I know today about competing and actually living the bodybuilding lifestyle. So what I mean by that is everything that comes with contest prep, you know, and I've spoken about this a lot on my channel as well. A lot of the negatives that come from competing, a lot of the uh, extremes it takes to get in contest shape. And especially for a natural bodybuilder, you know, we're talking about putting your hormone levels, you know, somewhere in the lower range where you're feeling terrible, um, all the moods, the mood changes that come with it. And, um, yeah, I probably, like I said, I learned all that in, in those years and I took that with me and have always applied it to the way I do things now. So, like I said, that was probably the biggest learning experience I had back then. So that was around 2011. I took some time off after that, didn't do another show for about two, three years. And the main reason for that actually was I dieted so hard at that time, again, going for that shredded glutes look 
that um, I actually had some really big issues with my hormone levels at that point because I uh, buried myself so deep into a prep that um, you know I was having libido issues. Uh, my testosterone levels I checked they went down as low as like 300. When I've checked mine naturally, they're about like 900. So we're talking about going much lower. Took some time off. Really wanted to get things working as far as uh, dialing in my training, my nutrition, so that. You know, obviously that's, that's inevitable when you get that lean, those things happen, but I really wanted to dial it in where I could take more, I guess, smarter approaches to, to bodybuilding contest prep, because a lot has changed as far as the things people did back then to get in shape and what we do now, you know, science has definitely improved since then we've learned a lot. We've learned how to make things more efficient, but just kind of circling back a little bit too. a really cool thing I want to mention at that point was, um, I competed in the INBF, the NGA, and then that was the year I also transitioned a bit into the MPC. Um, that was 2011, I think, was the first year that the NPC men's physique division came out. I believe that was the first year, 2010, 2011. So I had a physique at the time where a lot of people were telling me, listen, you know, you're doing decent in natural bodybuilding, you're doing decent as a bodybuilder, but men's physique, there's this huge opportunity here. It's this new, new thing coming out. So I tested the waters a little bit with that. I did pretty well. I competed as far as going to the national level in men's physique. I just didn't love it the way I love bodybuilding. You know, I, I couldn't buy into the whole thing about wearing board shorts and, you know, only being able to do side poses and things like that. You know, I grew up, you know, idolizing guys like Arnold and old school bodybuilding, which is obviously a big thing that they talk about today. So that kind of was the time where I, you know, said, listen, I love bodybuilding and I don't really necessarily want to compete anymore because I didn't always love the competing aspect. I love the process of it. So I said, you know what, why am I competing if that's not my main goal? My main goal was always just to improve my physique. So eventually I shied away from competing itself, always living the bodybuilding lifestyle. I mean, I still, still train up until now, like I'm getting ready for a show, but I don't necessarily step on stage. So my biggest thing is I like to help others now who are passionate about actually competing on stage. Uh, but for me, I, I just love training and, and, you know, living the lifestyle of a bodybuilder. Makes total sense, man. And with respects to what you had mentioned there, as far as old school bodybuilding, cause that's a big thing that yeah. you talk about. On, yeah. That's a big thing you talk about on your channel. Are those the bodybuilders from that era? Is that what inspired you to go in that direction of competing? Yeah. Initially, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, like I said, I first started training at like 14 years old. I watched pumping iron maybe when I was like 15 and I, I watched pumping iron and that was the thing that, that made me say, okay, I want to compete. You know, that was, that was my, my biggest spark in the beginning of bodybuilding that really got me involved. You know, when I looked at those physiques and at, at that time, if we were to look at bodybuilding, you were talking about like the Ronnie Coleman era, Jay Cutler, like that's who people were looking at. And I never looked at those physiques and said, I want to look like that. You know, obviously I respected it. Um, I love every aspect of bodybuilding. I respect all of it. But when I looked at the guys in Arnold's era, I said, that's a physique I want to have. I didn't necessarily want to compete in, you know, the era that I grew up in thinking, okay, I want to be a pro bodybuilder. I want to look like Jay Cutler. You know, I wanted to look like Arnold. Mm. So was there what going into your first contests that you did, you competed in the IMBF. So that's the, um, IMBF WMBF, correct? Correct. Yes. Gotcha which is a huge organization for yeah. mm -hmm. um, dedicated to natural bodybuilding. Did you have aspirations to maybe go to worlds and do all that in that time frame before you kind of went into the men's physique thing? Initially, that was kind of my main goal. You know, I, mm -hmm. um, I did. And then, like I said, as I competed, you know, I, I love, I love the experience, you know, I, I, um, I would do it all over again, you know, but 
when I looked at it in hindsight, you know, I was competing for the sake, for me personally, my decision to compete, I was competing for the sake of, okay, I was chasing a trophy. I was chasing, you know, the outcome of it. And it kind of took me away from my end goal, which, like I said, originally, I'm aspiring to build this type of physique. And, you know, after a while, you start making sacrifices because you think, okay, if I do this, it'll end up helping me get my pro card. Or, you know, if I compete at every show once a year, you know, I have more chances to win a show and then move further. But the reality is, especially, you know, you're competing as a natural, you know, especially early on, you know, like I'm talking about when I was in my 20s, I was, you know, still fairly young um, when I first started training. It would have benefited me more to say, listen, I'm going to take two, three, even four years off and just build as much muscle as possible rather than every single year trying to improve in a contest. Because realistically, every time I stepped on stage from 2009 to 2015, I was maybe like one or two pounds heavier, like from the start to the finish in that time frame. Had I actually just grew the whole time, you know, allowed my body to be in a surplus. Uh, allowed my body to just keep putting on muscle rather than spending all that time dieting, I might've, let's say been 10 pounds heavier. So let's break that down because I think the, especially now social media, yeah, people who are into natural, who people who are into competing just in general, they might be doing it for reasons like to, for the gram, for pictures, right. for this and that, that, and you know, to each their own. But if you have this goal, like you had mentioned, where you want to build this specific physique, this look, the competing side could be taking away from that Absolutely. if you're doing it, if you're doing it too often, like you had mentioned. Yeah. So what kind of message do you have to, especially for, if you're in your early twenties, do you think it's almost better for someone who, who is just getting into this bodybuilding thing to hold off maybe until maybe even mid twenties to do a first show late? Like, do you think that that's an appropriate thing to maybe advise, especially for younger lifters? Because uh, now hear me out, but would you based upon your education, your experience, say that there's like a window when in your youth where you could potentially make more gains, more have more muscle growth from a specific time frame of youth than you maybe otherwise would if you kind of did that process later on. Like, but I don't know. Well, what are your what's your take on that? And do you know much about that? Yeah, yeah. Um I have a pretty strong opinion on that, but it also, the one thing I want to preface it by saying is that obviously it depends on when everyone starts training, because mm. let's say I work with somebody, let's say if I work with somebody that, um, I have a few examples of this. I have guys that come to me that are, uh, let's say they're like 18 to 20 is the, is the age range. And they've maybe just started training a year or two ago. If they're in that situation, the best thing they can do is take advantage of that, that time frame. You know, you're young you probably don't have any aches or pains. You don't have any injuries. You don't have anything preventing you from putting on muscle. That is the best time to say, listen, we're just going to focus on gaining mass. You know, we're going to, we're going to forget about, you know, like you said, taking pictures for the gram, uh, looking lean. We're going to, you know, obviously we're not going to get out of shape, but we're going to, our eyes are going to be in one direction. Let's build muscle. Forget about, okay, I want to have abs this summer, you know? And that is the type of person that you can take them from, let's say they start at, let's say 165 pounds, and you can easily get them up to 200 pounds in a fairly lean state within a few years of doing that. Whereas now, if you say, you know, somebody comes to you and they're, let's say they're in their late twenties, maybe early thirties, and they want to get serious about bodybuilding. Maybe they've played sports before. Maybe they have, you know, a background of just, you know, they're in their, their late twenties, early thirties, you know, they're not as young, not that 30 is late to get into bodybuilding, but 
it's definitely going to have some different challenges being, being at that age. I might not get very aggressive with the mass gaining process with them because one, you know, if you're carrying any type of injuries, you know, I'm turning 33 next week. If I were to try to train the way I did when I was 20 now, I would, you know, it'd probably be the end of it for me because I've already had to alter my training so many times over the years. Every year that I get older, it's not necessarily being 33, but just the, the 20 years of hard training has, you know, taken a toll on certain areas of my body. You know, my, my knees aren't the best, my lower back's not always the best. So I have to alter my training. So if somebody comes to me in that situation, I'm not necessarily going to be as aggressive with the mass gaining approach. I'm also going to do it more in phases, let's say, because they also can afford to, you know, if they've been training before, they, they're not going to be expected to gain as much much muscle in a short period of time. So we can get a little bit more specific with it where we're going to gain and lose depending on the body fat percentage. But like the early years, those guys have to spend time just gaining muscle. I mean, I tell everybody, you know, I get a lot of people that, that ask me questions on a regular basis and they're, they're young, they're maybe 165, 170 pounds, and they're asking me all these very specific questions. And I always say, you know, the, just focus on gaining mass. You know, they're worried about specific body part routines. You know, what exercise can I do for this part of the back? What exercise can I do to bring out, you know, this head of the tricep? And I say, listen, you know, if you're 160 pounds, you shouldn't be focusing on that. If we focus on gaining as much muscle as possible, it's probably going to solve 90% of your problems. No, you brought up something, some good points there, because especially with the injuries, which we'll get into, because yeah. I think that's a, a valuable topic to cover. When I first got into, like, I feel like when you're younger, you are willing to do things you, your older self wouldn't be willing to do. Like Absolutely. I would, right. Yeah. And those Absolutely. are the things that, that can influence or impact your ability to grow mm. muscle better potentially. Yes. Right. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, the way I, I would train back, you know, when I started training, like I said, I was 14 when I started training, I was probably training my, my quote unquote hardest. You know, I would say I'm training my smartest, the smartest now, but when I was training the hardest was probably from 17 to about 22, 23. And the workouts I would do back then, like I would look at it right now. And I would like, if, 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 if my younger self said, listen, come train with me, I would say, no, I'm doing my own thing today. <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. do that. But Dude. you know what? It, some of it paid off very well. You know, I always say that, that hard training is the prerequisite to smart training. You know, everyone wants to today, especially they want to know what's the, what's the magic formula, you know, what's the, the best way to do this, you know? Optimal is really the word of the day in the, in the bodybuilding community. Is this optimal? And I always tell people, listen, you can search for optimal, but first you have to train hard. You have to work hard. And then, you know, you could look for smarter ways to do it. But if you want to skip over the hard training and just go for the smart training, you might not be able to apply that smart training properly without knowing how to do it intensely. Yep. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And if we're going to break that down, let's talk about, cause you'd mentioned you have at least now you're, mm. you, you are doing things smart, smarter yeah. than maybe when you were in your early twenties, to be fair. And yeah. you are managing or working around specific things. You mentioned you got your, you know, the little back sometimes will give you some, some things that you, in your trouble that you have to work yeah. around or the knees. Talk about that. Speak to that. What are some ways that you'll think through it? If something pops up, you know, in, on, you're doing a session, maybe you're right. doing a specific exercise, give us an example, how much you think about that and make sure that you don't, make things worse in that specific scenario. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, just to, just to go back a little bit too, and talk about how I used to train versus now. So when I, you know, when like I said, during that, that time period, 
Um, let's say if I was training legs, you know, I, I'd have to barbell squat. If I was training, if I was trying to build a big back, build, build a big posterior chain, like I had to deadlift, like these were non-negotiable, non-negotiable. So like if I walked into a workout and trained legs, but I didn't squat, I'd be like, well, what did I do today? You know, I trained easy. Right. But now today, if I'm going in and, and, you know, I don't barbell squat every single workout now. And it's simply because of the fact that if, you know, if my knees are bothering me or if my lower back is tight, it's not worth it for me to get under a squat bar because the risk for injury is so much higher. And at this point, am I necessarily going to build much more muscle? You know, if we're talking about the first few years of training and we're focusing on building a foundation, yeah, I'm going to tell people if you can, if, you, if you're healthy and you're able to squat, you should do those foundational movements. But after you've been training for 20 years, is there a need to barbell squat? Is there a need to deadlift the way there was in the beginning? You know, once you've accomplished kind of that strength base, taking a week off from barbell squatting and saying, listen, I'm going to do hack squats. It's not going to set you back, you know? And I think you need to be able to, like you said, on the fly, be able to make that judgment call and say, listen, you know, today, if I don't back squat, I can get just as good a result from using the leg press or using, you know, a hack squat, let's say. But that doesn't mean taking it easy just for the sake of taking it easy. That means that when you go in, you need to be able to assess, okay, do I really have it today? And when I was younger, I would have ignored that. And I would have said, nope, if you don't squat, you know, what did you do on leg day? And I would have pushed through it. You know, in some cases that, that would have paid off. Like I said, as you get older though, as you've been training longer, you know, I, I, I say older, um, not saying that at 33 years old, you're just going to get injured all the time. But if you've been training hard for 20 years straight, um, there's a lot of wear and tear that goes on and, um, you know, you're going to have to be smart about it. So yeah, just swapping out exercises. One thing I do now too, which I never would have done back then is if I wake up and let's say I had really poor sleep, let's say it was a stressful week and it was just, it's just not a good environment to go to the gym and train heavy. I might either just take that day off and say, listen, I'm going to train tomorrow. I'm going to take an extra rest day and it's not going to negatively impact me. Back then I would tell myself, oh, you're missing a day of training. You know, that's one day that you missed. You'll never get it back. But, you know, when we're talking about, you know, longevity, that's th something you have to incorporate. And I tell people all the time because people ask me, you know, is it okay if I train seven days a week? You know, or like, you know, is it okay if I don't take rest days? And I always tell them, listen, rest days are a part of the plan. Skipping a rest day is going to be like skipping chest day or skipping back day. You wouldn't do that. You know, you want progress. So you're not going to skip those days. So why would you skip a rest day? That's an incredible way to look at it, especially for the younger folks out there who have yeah. trouble with that. Right. And how much of an influence do you think your experience with high intensity training, shout out to Mike Menser, Arthur Jones, Casey Viator. You've talked about this a lot on your channel. It's a hot topic. How much of that or even Dory Yates, right? But mm -hmm. how much of, of that experience of you going through that helped you? Because there's pros and cons, I'm yeah. sure. And we can get into that for sure. This whole training to failure thing. But with respects to recovery and rest days, do you think that helped you to understand the importance of recovery, training that hard, that intensely yeah. and being okay with, hey, I'm just going to take an extra rest day if I really need right. it at this point in your training career, which we can get into how your training is not maybe that approach anymore, but right. why, not, why don't you uh, tell us? Cause I think that'll be interesting for the listeners. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it, like you said, it's definitely, it's a hot topic. And um, I think it's a hot topic more so because people like to identify with a certain aspect of training or a certain style of training, you know, everyone kind of picks their own, you know, like I'm either in the high intensity camp or I'm in the high volume camp or I'm in the bro camp or the science-based camp. And, 
you know, I've talked about this before too. I've kind of taken bits and pieces from all those camps and that's kind of, you know, how I've come up with my own system of training because I think there's value in all of it. And then if we talk specifically about high intensity training, um, I think the value in high intensity training is absolutely learning how to push your body to its limits, you know, because obviously, like I said, hard work is always going to be the prerequisite and you're going to make progress training hard, provided that you can recover, come back and do it again. Right. But to get the most out of any, any training system, whether it is hit or whether it's high volume, you have to, like I mentioned, you have to be self-aware. Okay. Am I getting better because of this? Is my recovery being negatively impacted from this? And a lot of people will totally forget about that. I don't know if forget about it's the right word, but people will look the other way when talking about HIIT training because they love that style of training. And they say, you have to train this way to get results. When in reality, you know, if they scaled back a little bit, they might make better progress. And that's what I found um, early on when I was experimenting with HIIT training. It, that was the type of training that resonated with me originally when I first started training. So naturally I was drawn to it. I love training hard still to this day. Um, like I said, if I wasn't going to get injured, um, if it wasn't going to set me back every single time I go in the gym, I would just train as hard as physically possible because I actually enjoy that. But what I found for me was when I would do that, let's say I would go in and um, do a high intensity like leg day, um, every set to failure, sometimes even doing beyond failure on rest pause sets, things like that on some machines and other exercises, I would be so drained from that workout that if I tried to train anything the next day or maybe even two days later, let's say it was chest or let's say it was you know back or something like that, my nervous system would be so fried that I would have to take off two, three, or even four days before I felt strong enough to train again. And now you kind of lose the frequency. Um, and even though my legs are recovering, you know, my back or my chest was able to be trained, but I didn't have that energy. I didn't have that. I was carrying way too much fatigue that it made the program inefficient for me, you know, and not, not to say that, uh, somebody else can't get great results using that approach, but you have to tie all these things in together. Okay. You have the stimulus, you have recovery, and then you have your training volume, your training frequency. And if one of them is such a, such a strong stimulus that it's negatively impacting all the other ones, you're missing out on all these other variables that can help you grow, you know? So you have to balance all of these things. And I made a video on this before too, that um, some people will get away with training that way and still be able to recover and grow, but it might not necessarily be the reason that they're recovering. I mean, that they're growing. So what I mean by that is some people just have a higher tolerance for fatigue. You know, some people can you know, we all know people that can sleep three, four hours a night, get up the next day and perform at hundred percent. I'm not one of them. If I don't sleep for eight hours, my whole day is shot. Um, so just because you can get away with that doesn't mean it's better. And I think a lot of people that get away with that type of training might do just as well on another approach, but because they enjoy it, it works for them. So I definitely think there's an element of enjoying what you're doing. That's important. You know, obviously the more you enjoy a program, the better it's going to be for you. But what I learned from that is that I can bury myself in a session. Some people don't have that ability. So a lot of people might do a program like that. Say they train, they think they're training to failure. Maybe they're leaving one or two reps in the tank and they say, I could recover just fine from that. But I do a workout like that, you know, on paper, it says go to failure. And I will go literally, I mean, I remember going in the gym and training until I would squat in that bar. I would have to have the catchers up in the squat rack. And if that bar didn't pin me down, to me, I didn't reach failure. You know, most people aren't doing that. So there's a big difference between the type of recovery that workout will require versus stopping one or two reps shy of failure. 
Now, that's a very important thing you brought up with what people say they're doing versus what they're actually doing yeah. and how that could influence their ability to come back and do it the next day. Like, oh, I can recover from that. But did you, yeah, yeah did you actually train all the way to your maximum ability, uh, i.e. momentary muscular failure, whether it's concentrically or eccentrically or even isometrically, if you're going that far with it, right? Because um, yeah. you said you'd even do force reps and then you'd maybe even do some negatives and you know, how, how long does that take to recover from? And then you yeah. miss out, you miss out on some of those other variables that you I, mentioned there. Yeah. I tried, I tried everything. I mean, if we, if you were to ask me about any type of training method, I probably experimented with it. And when, when it, when I went down the hit rabbit hole, um, if I, you know, what I learned was if I, according to what I, I had read and consumed over the years, um, if I wasn't getting the results, it's because I wasn't training hard enough. But the thing is I was already going in there training harder than my recovery abilities and Everyone, you know, online in the books, the things they read, I actually have, um, it's funny we're talking about it. I have Mike Menser's um, book right here, you know, yes. um, and he literally spoke about in that book, you know, it's not even about hitting failure where you can't do another rep. You have to do negatives. You have to do isometric holds. You have to do everything until you literally can't even hold the weight anymore. And like you said, that's talking about a whole nother level of recovery that comes with that style of training. But yeah, I mean, most people their perception of what failure is, is very different than the other person. So it's very hard when you talk to somebody and they'll say, you have to take every set to failure. People tell me this all the time. They'll say, if you don't take every set to failure, what did you do in the gym? Somebody actually watched one of my training videos recently. And they said, wow, I'm very surprised that you put that weight down way before failure. And I said, you know, I train with roughly one to two reps left in the tank on most exercise, just as an average. But to somebody else that looks like I'm training way shy of failure. But, you know, obviously I know my body after doing this for, for as many years as I have, I can gauge, you know, my, my reps in reserve. And, um, what to me, what actually feels like one or two reps in reserve for somebody else looking at them, I think it's more, you know, based on how they train or their perception of what failure actually is. So it's very hard when you look at a program or talk about it online and you prescribe, go to failure or go one rep shy of failure. It's a little bit different for everybody. It's a little bit different depending on the movement as well. You know, people talk about going to failure and they say, you should do, you know, a set of preacher curls to failure. You should also do a set of barbell squat to failure. Most people are not doing a barbell squat to failure, even if they say they are, you know, they're still probably training with one or two reps in the tank, calling it failure just for safety reasons. You know, most people aren't doing it. Right. Almost subconsciously, your brain won't even allow you because it knows yeah. it's got nothing there to help you out if you, if no. you, if you fail basically. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting because I wanted to bring this up. The. Hit community is interesting because like you said, there's pros in terms of it being a valuable tool to help you with effort, like to teach you how to train yeah. hard because you have one set. That's kind of the, That's it. we'll mm -hmm. say, we'll, we'll say their rules or if you will, their principles, right? So you want to give everything you have into that one set. You don't want to waste it kind of thing, right? But they'll use the, often use like the, you know, like the sprinter, um, uh, marathon runner example right. of like the sprinter, they train like all out and then the marathon runner you know, they're not really doing that. They're pacing themselves. And if you want to look like a, a bodybuilder, right. you got to train all out, you, you know, that kind of analogy. Plus, and, yeah. and it's interesting because, you know, I've trained with Olympic sprinters, like in mm -hmm. high school, like guys who went to the Olympics, like high level Olympic elite level professional sprinters. Right. And they don't train 100% of their effort every That's training session. Point. Yeah. They train like 90%, 95, maybe some days even 85 or 80%. Right. depending on the day and depending on 
um, the, how their program is structured. It's not like they're going in there doing an all out right. sprint every training session. So I, you know, I've, I've always wanted to bring this up on the podcast, yeah. talking about this subject, because I think that's good for perspective for listeners, because that analogy kind of gets thrown out. Yes. If anything, it's, it yes. supports what you just mentioned with maybe leaving a few reps in the tank to, you know, cause we got to come back tomorrow or the next day. Right to do this thing again, if we want to, because if we're talking about um, maximizing our potential to grow muscle, no different than a sprinter maximizing his potential to get faster or to, you know, maintain a certain level of ability to train at his fastest ability when come race day, it's like race day is 100% of all out effort. That could be kind of considered as like, we're going to go in the gym. We're going to test where that limit is, but we don't have to train there every session. I mean, how, how detrimental could that be? Like you said, as far as recovery. But I mean, look, like you mentioned, uh, I don't think it's a camp thing. Uh, it should be kind of, you know, right. these people in these camps, these people in these camps, I think there's value to draw from each, but I think the preference thing, unfortunately, and, uh, is a big thing, the preferences and mm-hmm. what people enjoy. But also, like you said, like people want to identify not only with a system, but I feel like with certain bodybuilders and how they look right. Oh like, yeah. Menser and Casey V8, like it right. was hardcore. They right. looked a certain way, like they were just yes. different. Right. Um, yes. but yeah, I, I, th- I, it's, a, it's always a fun topic to bring up. And I, and I think it was cool to, 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 to discuss this in more detail with you because you've talked about this a lot on your channel and yeah, I, you know, it's a, it's a, yeah, a hot topic and people love, love it. They like to hear different people's insights on it. So what, where are you at now? So you, you like to train with some reps in reserve. Do you have days where you will take it to the house? And if so, what, how does that look for you in terms of structure? Yeah, I would say about 90% of my training is done one to two reps shy of failure. I will occasionally train to failure on certain exercises. I will maybe regularly train to failure or near failure. You know, like I I used the example before, if I'm doing, let's say like a preacher curl, I'm not worried about taking that to failure that that's going to cause any more recovery issues than let's say if I'm training a set of squats to failure. You know, I'm obviously going to keep myself in check on those bigger compound movements. But if I'm doing an isolation exercise or a machine or something like that, it's not going to induce as much fatigue going to failure on that exercise versus, like I said, I'm not going to try to take a set of deadlifts to failure. But yeah, I would say about 90% of my training is, is done in that one to two reps shy of failure. And that to me is kind of the sweet spot where you're, you're getting just enough out of the set, but you're not going too far with it where now you really have to micromanage recovery because once I start training much closer to failure or to failure every set, I have to look at every aspect of the program and make sure that I'm going to be able to recover from every single session. It kind of builds in a little bit of wiggle room where you know I can be a bit more flexible with my approach. I'm not going to beat myself up so much where I have to micromanage every single aspect of my training. If I'm uh, using a training system where let's say I'm training legs three times a week, I'm going to have to manage recovery between each of those sessions much more than if I'm training it, let's say once or twice a week. Same thing when we talk about training intensity, that gives me a little more flexibility. And I rather train one to two reps shy of failure, do a bit more sets, let's say, um, get higher quality sets out of there rather than take every single set to failure. And then potentially, like I said, burn myself out, have to take more days off the gym. Makes total sense. So what I did want to mention was, would you say that with what you had mentioned there with respects to training to failure and how everyone's perception of what that is really, why it, people will be like, wow, hit really worked well for me. Like I could do, I could train all out four times a week. Some might even say five times a week right. mm-hmm. and recover just fine. Maybe those are the people just to be fair, to be critical, to question things. 
Maybe those are the people that aren't really going to that limit potentially, right? Um, or they just have like superhuman uh, recovery abilities, but just right. something I thought was interesting to bring up, or they're just not training as frequently, like you mentioned, where you have to you have to train uh, once every four days, like what Mentzer was kind of prescribing near the end of his bodybuilding, or not even bodybuilding career, just end of his life, right. I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, I kind of find that there's two groups of people that will say like hit gave me the best gains of my life, you know, and, and the first group of people, it's usually, and, and this is a good thing. I, I would say that this actually helps uh, hit is a good idea for these people. Um, the first group is usually like the guys that go in the gym and let's just say they do endless amounts of set in the gym with zero intensity. You know, a lot of guys will go in the gym and, you know, they, they look, they look on social media and they just see all these huge guys doing, you know, they're demonstrating exercising more so than doing heavy, intense sets. You know, you got like all the Instagram influencers and things like that, um, showing you, you know, an exercise, this is how you do it to grow this part of your muscle. And then you get guys in the gym who really don't know much about training intensity and they're doing 20, 30 different, you know, sets in a, in a, in a workout for one body part, none of them anywhere near failure. Um, you know, they might train one body part once a week and maybe one set in the entire workout is moderately hard. The rest is all pump training, um, you know, just not effective sets. Then if they discover something like hit training and they say, oh, I have to go to failure, they still might not have the ability to train to failure to the extent that, you know, hit advocates actually recommend, but let's say they're even training zero reps in reserve, one rep in reserve, meaning that they're not failing on an exercise, but they stop the set, maybe just the last clean rep they can get. They also bring their volume down. Now they're not doing as much junk volume. They're focusing more on quality over quantity. Um, and even if they're not training, you know, quote unquote optimal at this point, their training effort is much higher. Um, their recovery is probably in check. They're probably going to progress pretty well. And, you know, especially if they've been doing that style of training that they were previously, where they were just doing a ton of volume that wasn't effective volume. Um, when they bring it down and they focus more on the quality, they're going to get such a better response to that style of training versus somebody who's already training hard. You know, when you take somebody that's already training very hard and you tell them, listen, we're going to lower the volume even more. We're going to bring the intensity up even higher. A lot of times it doesn't work that well in that case. So the guys who are training very easy before they switch over to it, it, it does work well. And what I found over the years is a lot of people will do that and they might be hardcore hit guys as a result to say, listen, this is the best way of training for me. The more they do it over time, I found over the years, a lot of them will slowly over time back off a little bit and say, listen, you know what? I'm still going to keep my volume a little bit lower, but instead of me forcing myself to go to failure, beyond failure, things like that, every single workout, let me try maybe leaving one rep in the tank, maybe adding one extra set over here, um, maybe bringing the frequency up a little higher. And I find that most people, um, you know, that really the, the answer is to hit training for most people does have an expiration date too. It's not really an approach that they can do for, you know, I'm talking about, I've been training 20 years. Even if I were to say that one approach to training was the best way, it's not going to be the same way I trained for 20 years straight because over time you have to adapt, you know, your body will force you, even if you don't want to, even if you love training that way, eventually something will happen where you say, listen, I have these aches and pains. My lifestyle maybe doesn't permit for me to train this way all the time, you know, so you have to uh, adjust based on those circumstances and it will happen the longer you train. And that's the biggest thing I found with HIT training. And, you know, the other people that get decent results from it are the type of people that really don't train that often, you know? So let's say you are only able to get to the gym one or two times a week. You're going to have to make those sessions very intense to get anything out of it. So a lot of people are trying to fit into 
you know, fit the hit style of training into a system where they say, listen, you know, I go to the gym five, six days a week. And obviously that's not going to work. So there's unique situations where I do think it works, but you know, a lot of times people, like I said, they're always searching for that optimal style of training. And I think optimal, you know, is being flexible with all these different variables and fitting them into your lifestyle. That's great, man. That's great. And if we're talking about longevity, sustainability, doing yeah. this, being able to do this for man, seventies, you know, if possible eighties, yeah. you know, how, and now we're, we, you're, you're not there yet, obviously, but based upon your experience, what you've learned, the experiences uh, you've taken with different systems of training, would you say that where you're at now, and I'm sure it'll evolve, you know, 10 years yeah, from now. If, absolutely. If, if I'm, I'm looking forward you. to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but would you say that this is something that you feel like, man, I could, I, I feel like I can run this for X amount of time more versus maybe when you were doing hit, did you feel that yeah. same way? No, I knew, I knew I wouldn't be able to run it forever, you know? And like, um, a, a big thing that I, when I got, when I was, was in the kind of that era where I was training hit and I was following Menser and Dorian Yates and things like that too. Another big, uh, training philosophy or a style of training was DC training was very popular back then too. Many people don't even talk about it today anymore, but, um, we're talking back. This is even way before when I started training, but, um, back in like 2007 to 2009, um, there was message boards and, you know, Dante Trudell was the guy that created hit. And he was kind of like, he had a cult following in, the, in that community. And um, he didn't necessarily train hit style. And he actually didn't want to be associated with Menster and hit because he thought that, that was a little bit too excessive, but the whole philosophy around his training style was train to failure. His was rest pause training, you know, one set to failure rest pause training. And it produced a lot of massive bodybuilders. So you can't argue with the results. But the reason I brought that up and the one thing I wanted to point out is many of those guys that built their physique using that style of training are still around today, but none of them still train that way because it's not a system that can realistically be, realistically be run for you know, 10, 20 years. You know, Maybe if you run it during your early years of training and you do build the majority of your muscle mass doing so, eventually all those guys have adapted to another style of training, you know, two, two of the main bodybuilders back then that were very known for using it were Justin Harris and Steve Kuklo, very successful bodybuilders. Eventually, you know, they built their physique using that system. Then they went on to more traditional styles of training, you know? So most of the guys I found that, that do, whether it's that style of training or it is Mike Mentzer's hit or any other style of training, eventually down the line, I found that they've all kind of shied away from it eventually. Not to say that it wasn't effective when they did it, but understanding that, like I said, there is kind of an expiration date on that style of training. Gotcha. So, I mean, if you're a bodybuilder trying to maximize, you're either going to, you're most likely going to be on one in the, of the extreme. Would you agree? Like if you are a competitive bodybuilder trying to maximize your ability to grow as much muscle as possible, you're, you're going to the Olympia, you're going WMBF world, whatever it is, would you say that like you have to be on one end of the extreme in order to to get the best results, even if it's for a short period of time, or maybe not? I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, it's funny because if you if you asked me this question maybe five ten years ago, I would have given you a different answer. And I would say now that you know it's kind of like a um, it's kind of like you know as a as when I was younger, I wouldn't want to hear this. You know, I, I'd want someone to tell me, listen, go one hundred percent. Um, you only got a few years to make this happen. Go. And there is definitely some truth to that. You know, you should maximize hard training when you can, but there is an element of 
playing the long game that should not be neglected. And that's one thing, if I could go back and look at my training early on, that if I could have improved it, I would have, I would have played the long game a little bit better. So for me, that would have been, you know, setting up more of a realistic approach where when I say realistic, a sustainable approach more so than anything, because if you're in this constant state of training so hard, dieting so hard, being so extreme with it, there's always going to be a period after where you have to somehow recover from it, whether that means you know you have to deload, take time off from the gym, or train easier for a certain period of time. And when we talk about the extremes in bodybuilding, um, you'll see this a lot more in the average community, but you'll also see this more with like even like pro bodybuilders where they'll kind of go through phases and seasons where, you know, like you'll see this with a lot of competitors, they'll compete. And then six months afterwards, they're doing nothing because the approach that they took was so extreme that there was no way they can mentally sustain it long-term. So they had to follow it up with that rest period, whatever the rest period is for them. For some people, that's no training. For some people, that's binge eating. Um, So if your training is so hard that it requires that type of recovery after that, you're actually, you're taking two steps forward, but then you're stepping backwards again. So did you really move forward at the same pace you would have, if you just had a steady, consistent progress moving forward? Um, and I think now, like I, like I said today, my approach is definitely more on consistently moving forward rather than training so hard that you need that recovery time, because I needed it too. There were so many times where I would train for six months at a time on a very extreme program where just mentally I was so burnt out afterwards that the next six months of training were so poor because I couldn't push myself the same way I could. And I'd have to mentally recover from that. But now, you know, if I, if I were to take the approach of just training consistently, so if we're going to use an example and and we're going to say going at a hundred percent, like you wouldn't hit all the time versus where I'm at right now, which is like 80 to 90%, I can go 80 to 90% much longer than I can go a hundred. That's for sure. Now that's incredible because it's interesting like just from my personal experience as well, when I ran a true kind of hit style approach, we'll say yeah. for the listeners, I was doing like a one to one, two to one ratio. Like meaning I would have, to, I would be able to get one or two weeks of really hard training yes. in, mm-hmm. and then I need a deload or like right. some sort of rest period. And it's yes. like, is that really productive? Is that a productive way to go about this? Pro- probably not right. for, first of all. Um, but also I want to mention if for the listeners who are now we're giving, we're, you know, we're giving them a lot of perspective, you know, you're giving them a lot of insight on your experiences with high intensity training, training to failure. Um, how would someone integrate training or can, how might someone integrate uh, training to failure in their routine or in their program? If they wanted to get best of both worlds, they wanted to play the long game. They wanted to, you know, train at 90%, 80%, majority of the time because you said you still you still have points throughout your training where you will go and you know to all out do an all-out set right maybe it's just consensually might not do four reps or negatives but right. mm-hmm. how would you do that how where would you fit that into your training because some people like to do it like right before they deload and other people like to do it on their last set how 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 do you integrate that Yeah. I mean, I like to do, there's a few different ways I do incorporate failure training. If I am incorporating it regularly, um, it will generally always be on the last set of the exercise I'm training that day. So let's just say, for example, I'm doing three sets. Um, I'm almost never going to train the failure on the first set 
um, because that's going to negatively impact the, the preceding sets anyway. So I'm not really getting an additional benefit out of going to failure on the first set. You know, true hit advocates will say, yeah, you should, because that's when you're most fresh and you're going to get the most amount of reps. But when we're looking at the entire training plan and what I'm doing in that workout. It's going to make every set less effective after that. So you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot by doing it first in the workout. So I'm doing three sets on the on that exercise, and I wait till the third set, third and final set, and I do train to failure. Um, then I'm moving on to the next exercise anyway. And I'm already going into that exercise as the second exercise for the day, so I'm not necessarily fresh anyway. So it's not necessarily going to negatively impact that second exercise as much as it would if I did it first in the day. So that's one way I will incorporate it. Again, that's that's a tool I'll use sparingly. I won't do that on every set, on every exercise. I'll do that more so on, on movements where I have a lot more stability and control. So like I said, if I'm using machines, um, I won't even really think twice about it. If I feel like going to failure on the last set, I'll go to failure without worrying about it. Um, I'll be a lot more hesitant or not hesitant, but I'll be a lot more methodical about it on doing something like, let's say I'm bench pressing and I have a spotter. Um, if I'm feeling really good and I say, you know what, I want to try for a PR on this set, or I want to actually push this set for as many reps as I can. Um, I might do that with a spotter on the last set, but in most cases, I'll probably avoid it altogether. Um, especially on a regular training day, you know, if you're not feeling great, um, pushing your body to hundred percent can leave you so much more susceptible to injuries than let's say if you're, you know, if you're stopping one, one rep shy of failure. So I really only recommend going that far close to failure when you're feeling great. Um, but even so you have to be, you know, aware that there's always a potential injury risk that comes from that extra rep. So you have to ask, is that extra rep going to actually benefit you to the point where it's worth doing? Um, but then, you know, you brought up another good point. People like to do it right before um, doing a deload, which I do think that that's definitely a way that you can apply it. Um, you know, if you have planned deloads in your training, I, I plan my deloads where I kind of give myself a range. So my training is very flexible. So when I, when I say flexible, um, I will have a routine and a plan and a goal with my training. And I might say, I'm going to train progressively for a period of, let's say six weeks, roughly. Um, if I'm feeling good on week seven, I'm not necessarily going to deload on week seven. I might push it another week. Um, and if I know I'm getting to the end of that block and I'm going to deload um, those last weeks, I'll definitely train closer to failure, knowing I have a recovery period coming after it. But if I'm starting out fresh, I'll almost never train um, to failure because I want to set myself up for produ productive weeks of training. If you start too early in the training cycle where you're pushing to failure and you plan on hitting a decent amount of volume over the next couple of weeks, um, you definitely could run into some issues. So I rather train consistently for six, seven weeks at a time, even eight weeks at a time, rather than training so hard in week one or week two, like you said, where two weeks later, I needed to have a deload. So I'll try to milk my training blocks for as long as I can, knowing that at a certain point, I'm going to have to deload. And for me, the way I train, like I said, that's roughly somewhere every six to eight weeks, I'll take a week and I'll train a bit lighter. Um, it, for me personally, it helps too with, with joint issues and things like that. I like to just lighten the load for a week, but also it'll serve to recover from any intense sets that I did previously. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to part one with Peter Kacharian. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to share and tag us on Instagram. The links are in the description box. Also, please check out our YouTube channel at Longevity Muscle where we release videos weekly, if not daily. We are going to be releasing videos from this episode. So definitely check that out. Subscribe. It goes a long way for helping to support the podcast. We appreciate you as always. 
And until next time.